I'm Roxy Manning. And I'm Sarah Payton. We're the hosts of the Fierce Compassion podcast. In this episode of Fierce Compassion, we talk with Carolyn Michelle Smith, the actor, creator, and mentor with Trinidadian Roots, who brings the importance of story to her acting and expression. At this session, we get to hear about what it is like to be a Black actor and creator, how to participate in the new post-network Hollywood, and the importance of the writer's strike. We also explore the importance of authentic self-expression and finding our own stories for creativity. We hear how Roxy met Carolyn Michelle Smith, who is one of the readers for Roxy's audiobook, and the delight they found in shared identities. Join us to celebrate lateral networking and the importance of community and mutual contribution. Welcome to Fierce Compassion, the podcast that explores the power of compassion in creating an anti-racist society. I am Roxy Manning. And I'm Sarah Payton. We are delighted to be joined today by the talented Carolyn Michelle Smith, a Juilliard-trained actress who has graced screens with roles in House of Cards, Luke Cage, and The Shy. Beyond her on-screen prowess, she's a dedicated mentor significantly contributing to Lena Waithe's Hillman Grad Mentorship Lab and leading Aspire Higher Coaching Services. As the entertainment landscape shifts, Carolyn Michelle Smith champions the intersection of artistry, empowerment, and anti-racism, drawing from her rich Trinidadian heritage and her commitment to elevating diverse voices. Welcome to Fierce Compassion, Carolyn Michelle Smith. Thank you so very much. It's an honor to be here. (laughs) Well, Carolyn, I am so thrilled (laughs) and beyond thrilled (laughs) to have you as our guest. (laughs) I've been so moved at the way we came into contact. So can you share with our listeners how we got in touch with each other and some of the amazing coincidences that we discovered? Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, it was such an honor because I happened to be uh, affiliated with an audiobook publishing company and I have worked on several audiobooks and your amazing book, How to Have Anti-Racist Conversations, happened to come across as an audition. And I saw the subject matter. I read a little bit about you and I thought I would love to do this book. And so I remember submitting my audition and just sort of having my fingers crossed. And lo and behold, um, I was very fortunately selected by you to be the narrator of your book. And, you know, it's so funny because in starting to read your book and learning more about you, I was floored by all of the coincidences in terms of our journeys growing up and even down to our birthdays and the fact that we have the same birthday on July 8th. I was blown away and our Trinidadian heritage, doubly blown away. And something about it felt very, very aligned. And so I just reached out to you via Instagram and there we are. Here we are now. (laughs) I mean, for me, it's just been such an honor. Once you reached out to me and I got a sense of how aligned we are, I remember, like, I picked your audition because I loved your voice. And there was this (sighs) huge resonance that you were bringing to the readings. Mm. And now it feels like an extra gift, extra, like, carry on the cake to have you as the narrator. Because you, like you said, you so deeply understand and represent my perspective. So, Mm. wow. We're going to talk some more about this. I wanted to start with the question that we ask all of our guests, which is... How do you define self-compassion? What role does Mm. it play in your work and your life? Absolutely. You know, it's interesting. I've been thinking a lot about this recently because when it comes to the work that we do as, as actors, I think that historically speaking, we don't see actors often enough take the time in their own personal process to have self-compassion. We learn to be compassionate for others, for our characters that we're building, who we're working with on sets and in theaters. But when doors close, very often we don't have that compassion for ourselves. And it takes a while to start to build that. And I think this is such a great question because the concept of self-compassion has not become one that's become very clear to me in my own life, probably until the past two years. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that 
our entire industry is evolving rapidly, as we know, with the current strikes. Um, and also the picture of what it means to be a thriving, a thriving artist in this day and time has evolved. And so with that outward evolution, there has to be an internal revolution, right? And I believe in the process of that internal revolution, that's where a kind of self-compassion can begin. And I believe has begun, I know for myself. Um, and I believe that self-compassion and empathy obviously are so deeply intertwined, right? Self-compassion for oneself. And you talk about this a lot in your book too. When we look to others and we're understanding their connection to needs as we have, that's the common thread. And so I really feel that self-compassion for myself is a space to more recently explore, but it's something I offer to the mentees as well for them to start exploring early because it, um, it, it cushions the path or the journey a bit. It makes the rocky roads a little more plush. <laughs> Does that make sense? Absolutely. Because at a minimum, being an artist, especially being an actor, means there are a lot of rejections. There are a lot of messages you get about not being enough, not being good enough. And if yes. you can't hold yourself with self-compassion, you're going to crumble under the weight of that. So yes. it absolutely makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting, too. I do believe a lot of the pressures that many uh, younger or emerging entertainment professionals, actors, creatives, I sort of classify them all in a, in a large group because now we know to be an actor, you can also be an influencer or content creator or producer. Do you know what I mean? It's literally, those are all of the hats, right? Um, and so for all of those hats, I think it's just important to be considering that early on because the way that you make your living is going to vary, right? The way that your family will see you is going to vary. So what does it look like to build that love and um, value for yourself and your path early? One of the things that I was so struck by when I was reading about you was that you had an initial vision of success as a regular on a to be a regular on a primetime network cop drama. <laughs> and with the writer's strike, I've been totally into the whole SWAT continuum. So I was like, I was immediately imagining SWAT. That's um, part of that. <laughs> and, um, and so I just wondered, how do you think systemic biases in the industry shape the aspirations of global majority performers? Mm -hmm. Challenge these notions in both your work as an actress and in your mentoring work. Absolutely. Uh, greatly so. I know that when I was just uh, in Juilliard, when I was at Juilliard, I, it was a while back, and I remember thinking about who I saw around me um, who had sort of made it um, that were maybe recent graduates or who I saw on television, Black woman-wise specifically, dark-skinned Black woman-wise specifically, and what success looked like for them at that time. And because, this is a funny thing too, because the nature of television was largely network focused, opportunities did look different then. Network focused television demands the idea that there needs to be sort of like a black woman sidekick who sort of supports the main white guy. You know what I mean? But with the advent of streaming, suddenly all these narratives, these really diverse, open, out of the box narratives started to develop. And that was not historically where we were in entertainment when I was coming out of school. And so I saw that network picture as success. And I was totally down to, I was kind of just sort of down to, you know, play that, that game because it is a bit of a game. Um, and, you know, many people can find great success, enjoy doing that. But I know that who Carolyn is and like what Carolyn's inspired by, the kind of work, the kind of stories, the kind of nuance I'm driven by, that that would not be enough for my soul in the long run. And so I think that, um, you know, when I, I'm, I'm grateful that with the evolution of what television has become and with the evolution of who I've become and like what I want and value, that suddenly the picture started to shift a bit. And so this concept of starting to create your own work and, you know, look into stories, read material that really draws you, ask questions. If there's anything that Juilliard gave me, I didn't expect it would give me was a voice for the kind of art that I'm drawn to and want to create. It suddenly gave me a taste and aesthetic, right? And now I can smell it, you know? Mm -hmm. 
And so I think that um, in terms of the, that's in terms of performance, but then in terms of mentoring, um, in terms of systemic bias, I feel like, you know, the reality is that a lot of, I'm spe speaking specifically through the lens of what it means to be a Black female actress or even Black male actor coming out to the industry at that time and now versus now. And I think quite a bit of systemic bias um, you know, between then versus now. I know that many of the young Black men coming out of my program around that time did really well. And the systemic bias around that time made it easier because Black men are sellable because you see them and you see sex, right? Yep. So there was an automatic guarantee that the sex is, you know, equivalent of their sellability or their marketability. So if you don't equal that and you fall into a place a category specifically as a black woman who is not always seen as sexual. And at that time only so if I were of lighter skin, if I, if you're not seen in that space, you fall into this nether category um, where if you're not a much larger size or a much skinnier size, but you're in between, nobody knows what to do with you, you know? And that's where I came out. And I came out with my own aesthetic, what I loved, but I also came out speaking the way that I speak with the articulation that I have, hyper-trained by Juilliard. So, and then with whenever I get excited or mad or happy, a little straight out of accent would slip out and you'd get a little <laughs> bit of this and it would confuse everything even more, you know what I mean? So nobody really knew what to do with me and I didn't know what to do with myself because up until that point, I was following the rules. And now walking out of school, the rules weren't even able to work anymore for my own success. And so I was able to work, get great opportunities, but I learned that in coming out of school, it is about what you can make. And so in terms of opportunity, and that's what's so important when I work with mentees now, is that regardless of what's happening systemically, what's around you, how can you dispel that narrative and not find yourself shackled right? By what society is telling you to do. How can you create your own story on screen, on stage, and especially off? Because off, off screen, off stage, that's where the real story of who you are fuels everything else. Everything else. This for me loops back into the self-compassion because as you're hearing and seeing all of these people who are trying to define you and put you into this box and tell you this is what is available to you, this is how I can sell you, you have to know yourself. You have mm -hmm. to deeply understand what's important to you and hold yourself with a lot of self-compassion for maybe opportunities you turn down that actually don't align with your vision for yourself. Mm -hmm. Like something that helps you stay true to what matters to you. Yeah. And it takes a lot to stay true. <laughs> it takes time. It takes trust. It takes trust. But I believe the trust, the empathy, and the self-compassion, they're all linked, you know? Absolutely. Well, talking a little bit about challenges, you shared with me, like we were texting on Instagram after we found each other, that mm -hmm. while you were narrating the book, you had touched some of the personal and systemic challenges that you had faced on your journey to become the actress that you are now. And the time to remove the tears. And I'm wondering if you would share a pivotal moment or experience that really shaped your personal healing and understanding of the industry. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a couple. I have actually one from the book, an excerpt from the book. So I don't know how much, I don't want to tease or spoil too much for, the, for our listeners. But um, no friend. <laughs> great. <laughs> Well, you touched on several things that really deeply affected me. And one of them that caused me to have to pause recording in that moment and take a good 10 or 15 minutes to reflect upon, because I'd never said this sentiment out loud. So to read it on the page and for it to resonate so deeply filled me with so much emotion. Um, and there was this concept of what it means in for global majority people to be among, uh, in spaces with those who are experiencing structural privilege and what it means to have to fashion themselves in a way, behavior, language, gesture, as non-threatening or to set themselves apart from the rest of the global majority because it was some form of protection. And it, it, it hit me because so much of my life growing up in suburban areas in Maryland and going to 
predominantly white institutions, that has been my MO. It's been a matter of survival. Yes. And I've spoken to a few friends about this recently, and, I, and I'm trying to help some friends understand that there is something in the concept of Black exceptionalism that is deeply rooted in survival. It's an adaptive technique that we've figured out. Um, it's like ninja mode. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yes. Oh, yes. And you think you're protecting yourself, but you're really hurting your authentic self even more. Are not allowing you're, you're almost muting your authentic self in a way. So I that was the one part of the book that, with my audio engineer who also got emotional, who's a white male, um, we both got to a very open healing space and were able to discuss a lot about our own personal wow. perspectives and have a deep conversation about it. That was the first thing I had to share with you. Um, and then in terms of my own healing over the course of the industry and what I've experienced, you know, um, many of these institutions, once again, the one that I attended in particular, I credit for, you know, offering an aesthetic, providing network, um, providing tools and resources and community. But also, you know, there is the challenge that those are that are in control and that are decision makers that are the teachers of the faculty really sort of hold your fate in their hands when you're having that experience and shape your own perception of yourself. And there was one teacher that I had in particular who did that pretty negatively, but grateful that she did because she became the model for which I developed my own coaching practice. I thought this is why students need to be empowered. And so Coming away from that experience and having some time over the course of the past many years now, a lot of the students I've worked with have always come back to me and said, Carolyn, I always felt with working with you that my first instincts were right. And that's what they should feel because as artists, that's what we have to rely on is our first instinct. If you're told as a child, oh, look at that light, and your hand is smacked, and, you, and that mother or adult says, close your eyes, don't look at the light, right? Don't acknowledge that light. What does that do for your spirit? So they have often said they're really grateful for that, but I'm, I'm glad that they were happy for that. I think what I'm finding right now is that that healing that many of them, that, that, that discovery of empowerment that many of them mentioned that they shared um, or experienced while working with me, that is the premise. That's the whole reason why I wanted to come to coaching and mentoring so that this new generation could feel that, could trust their instincts. And that has been very healing. And, you know, when I think of how time passes and these people, these, you know, individuals who are in these positions come in for a time and then leave for a time. I often think of how great time is, right? How much we should honor and be grateful for time because with time comes natural evolution and needed evolution um, in all spaces. So time has been healing too. Is your, is your, coaching work primarily with other folks who are in this world of performance or no. work with everybody I work with everybody the work that I do the work that I do is primarily was is rooted first in working with performers um, initially it began with actors who were looking to move into grad school uh, training programs for theater and then it evolved into working with actors on sets. Um, it evolved into working with actors, prepping for auditions for TV and film. And then I started working with entrepreneurs. Um, so business owners, CEOs, and helping them to organize decks and presentations for investors. And it's all the same, really, because it's rooted in storytelling and in authenticity and in trusting your story so that you can bring your fullest self. So I love working with a variety of different backgrounds and demographics because it teaches me and uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Mm. I, wanna, I just want to say one thing that really struck me as you were speaking near the end there around time, time in some ways cures everything. Things are going to evolve. And I agree, I believe that, but I also think it's exactly what people like you are doing. That mm. you're saying, while time is evolving, I'm going to help show what's possible. I'm going to show a different way of being. So it's almost mm. like you're speeding up the evolution, giving it a little bit less work to do. And that's 
that's part of why we wanted to do this podcast to lift up the voices of people who are saying, I'm just not going to wait, <laughs> you know, for all of those folks to just die off, really. <laughs> I'm going to actually try to create change right now in the lifetime yeah. that I have. And that's what yeah. I see you doing. Thank you. That means a lot. That means a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a special, I think it is a special honor to be able to say, not even honor, it's a call, right? I think it's a calling, right? To say, yeah. okay, there's a need here. There are communities that have needs and what can I do to, to show up for them? You know, cause showing up for them means showing up for myself. It's, they're part of beloved community. So why not? <laughs> so Carolyn, I remember reading in an interview where mm-hmm. you said that you were a big believer in empathy and action and kind of meeting artists where they are as a foundation of your educational approach. And you know, you've read the book, you've narrated my book, thank goodness. And so you know that empathy and compassion are really a cornerstone of the anti-racist work that we do. So how does your empathic stance contribute to anti-racist practices within the arts and mentoring world? You know, ironically, there's a, there's a strong connect between um, the work of Dr. King in the nonviolent communication format um, and the discussion around dialogues that you share in the book with the way that I work with uh, clients, ironically. Um, And a lot of that is very needs-based. I think that there is an interesting tie, not just in the way that I work, but in the way that actors actually craft character that is also connected to it as well. So for me, it felt very familiar when I thought about um, how the two are linked. In terms of how I like to approach it, I feel, uh, you know, in terms of the work that I do with clients and how I love to incorporate just anti-racist practices in, in general, I do believe it's about conversation. I mean, several times I've worked with actors who are working on a character that may be outside of their cultural experience. And those are the times that whenever there's a wall and there may be an unconscious judgment or an unconscious bias, I pause for a moment and then we're able to find a cultural parallel. We're able to see, okay, great. So how do you feel when this thing happened to you? even though it is different circumstantially than this thing for this character, but how are they linked? Um, it's, it's finding the connections is what I find is what humanizes all of us. And uh, that's work that happens as an actor in process when I work with clients. And it's also something that I, that I have to practice myself. Um, yeah. I mean, I think specifically about you know, a few experiences I've had. One that I remembered reading in your book about the woman coming out of the cafe. um, And I don't want to spoil that for readers because it's a very powerful um, anecdote, but ultimately it's along the lines of, and I can share this, just what it means to not be seen in the moment Mm -hmm. and to be judged sort of on a very generalized basis. That's something I experience all the time and have figured out, great, Carolyn, you've moved beyond modifying your behavior, right, to avoid mistreatment. Because once again, that's adaptive and survivalist behavior. So what does it look like to move beyond that to then move into a space of, okay, I'm acknowledging the impact. I'm acknowledging how I feel. And I'm choosing to validly step into this conversation with this person who and that's that's not always pleasant. <laughs> you have to be ready. And I've and I've done and I've done that at a local grocery store that is a few blocks from my house where I'm profiled frequently. And I live in the neighborhood, I've been here for seven years. Wow. And you know, would get followed around and it's just a grocery store. And would have to, I remember once having to just stop and take a moment and breathe. And then I approached the security guard and I just, it took all of me. I gently put my arm, my hand on his arm. And I said, I live across the street. This is my local grocery store. I've been coming here for seven years. You don't have to follow me, sir. Because the reality is that we both knew why he was following me. Right. So we don't have to begin the conversation from a place of ignorance, right? But I could still be loving about what I'm, within all of that, I can be loving about what I see, what is real, and what I feel. Does that make sense? Oh, so, so, so deeply. 
And there's something. First, I just want to celebrate that you didn't kind of do the game. Like, why are you following me? It's like, we all know. We know exactly why you're doing it. We know. We know. And you didn't demonize him, even with that. Because on some level, it's like almost, this is his job. That's why he was hired. I get it. So, yeah, this combination of saying, I get you're doing your job, and it's still having an impact. And I'm weary. I'm tired. I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah. I'm tired. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a new it's an it's a it's a different way of looking about looking at these these situations that we as global majority people find ourselves in and really having to force ourselves to look at it through a new lens versus the lens of constant anger or constant shame or constant guarding. There's so much guarding that has beleaguered our spirits, worn our bodies out, <laughs> literally, you know, that I, I don't, I don't want that life anymore. And I don't want that in my genetic code anymore. I'm tired. And I have to say that just as piece you said, this right there is why I think this work is important for global majority people. So when people tell me, why are we doing this? Why are we being nice to white people? It's like, I'm not doing this for white people. I'm doing this to free me, to free mm-hmm. myself from the anger, the shame, the exhaustion when I don't know how to respond. You've just said it beautifully. Mm. It's big. It's big. It's really big. It's um, and it's also too. It's interesting. It's it's freeing for us, but it's actually and it's freeing for everyone, right? Because once we realize we've been complicit in a system that has been orchestrated, right, for capitalist benefit, like for capitalist purposes. And it really comes down to money is really what it comes down to, right? Which was so great to have the outline of that history of how, you know, it began of how slaves were classified by race, by color, right, first, and why that was. Suddenly that opened up the reality of, wow, we are literally, this is only one way of things being done. Only one there's so many other options for how we can operate in this world and what kind of new systems we can create together. Yeah. As you're speaking about capitalism and, and about there being other ways, I'm thinking about something you said about Issa Rae. And mm-hmm. so for, for listeners, Issa Rae is an American actress, writer, and producer who has gained significant attention for her web series, Awkward Black Girl. And um, you, you've talked about the Issa Rae effect, which means networking across rather than just focusing on trying to climb the hierarchy, mm-hmm. emphasizing collective success over individual achievement. Mm-hmm. How, just anything you want to say about this, because you've already been talking about the beloved community and <laughs> it's right in. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that. I think that pretty quickly coming out of that program and emerging into the industry and seeing what was available to me, understanding the way just capitalism works in general, but specifically within entertainment, it hit me. I was like, oh, there's this very hierarchical system of you have to know these important people and they have to be ones to select you. And then I thought, oh, okay. Well, I know where I fit on this sort of selection hierarchy already. That's pretty clear. Um, but at the same time, on, a, on an energetic level, on a genetic level, the concept of one person having power and making all the decisions did not resonate with my spirit. Um, there's a writer, Patrice Maladoma Somme, who talks a lot about community and the power of community and what it looks like, um, you know, within, um, specifically for African, for it, Pause. I don't want to get this wrong. <laughs> um, no worries. Patrice Maladoma Somme talks about the power of community and what it means and how we can share opportunities with each other and how that actually empowers the village, right? It empowers the community for everyone to be a part of something. And so I think that's what Isaway has truly done. I actually know um, one of the writers from, uh, from Insecure and watching how he became a part of her orbit, he has now done the same thing. It has an exponential effect. He's created a mentorship program. I'm going to shout him out. His name is Mike Guayo and his family is Haitian. And he has a fantastic program specifically for global majority 
writers emerging into the industry here in Los Angeles. But he would not have started that program if Issa hadn't offered him that job. Mm -hmm. Lena Waithe is also the same, very community focused, has opened up opportunities for so many of us. And those same actors, um, directors, right? Cinematographers then open up opportunities for others. I just deeply believe in the exponential power of uh, of empowering community and 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 employing community people that you really trust. Yeah, and part of it, like you've talked about, you know, that invisibility where people don't see you, don't even get considered for certain roles. But when we do exactly what you're describing, this Isheray effect, it's like I see you because yeah. you are me, and yes. so it makes it so much here for us to break free of these constraints of who is the person who's marketable because I see you I know what you can do I know what I can do it, it really is transformative yeah it really is it really is yeah and I love and it's and it's just another way <laughs> right yes. it's just another way that's all well as you talk about you know this kind of mentoring and broadening who has access one of the things that you're doing that I'm super excited about, and I can't wait to ask you this question, <laughs> you're creating your own work. You're developing a project that's inspired by a famous Calypso singer. And when I think about that, I even think about, there are going to be people listening to this who are like, what's Calypso, right? And this is another example of when we have people from different backgrounds, we broaden what's available, what gets considered, what gets made. And so I'd love to hear about this this project. First, tell our listeners what Calypso is. I know what it is, but I want you to tell it. And who yes, the singer is. Absolutely. How are you using your heritage in storytelling to help also dismantle racial prejudices? Absolutely. Yes. Well, Calypso music is music derivative from Trinidad and Tobago, Calypso, soca music. And it is near and dear to my heart. My mother uh, was born and raised in Trinidad and Tobago. And um, I am first generation Trinidadian American. And for me, there is something so powerful about Calypso music because it's ultimately storytelling in music form. And very funny stories that are also social commentary, political commentary. They function in a variety of ways. There's not really any modern day form, I believe, musically like it. I think even rap has evolved in a way that it's not as much commentary now as it was in its early inception. And so Calypso Rose is the Calypsonian uh, that I, we are profiling and we are very excited to be building and developing this project. I'm working with a producer here in Los Angeles and um, we're developing it into a feature film. And wow, it's a, it's a big endeavor and it's a role that clearly I, I would be playing Calypso Rose. I think she is an I, she is an icon and a legend, regardless of what I think. She is an icon and a legend. She was, uh, came into the scene um, at a time when there were not many female Calypsonians. It was a very male-dominated industry. Uh, so Mighty Sparrow and Lord Kitchener, these are names of a time. And the reason why I'm wanting to do it is because they are names of a time that have opened up opportunities for people like uh, Marshall Montano or Alison Hines. These are more newer names that, of course, Americans may not know, but that's okay. You know why? Because these stories, right, and these legends, while they may be from Trinidad and Tobago of a certain era, they're still navigating a lot of the same challenges that artists have been navigating now and will continue to. And I believe that it's important for America to understand the range of the Black experience, right? Because right now <laughs> it's limited to, you know, just our understanding of a few West African countries and Jamaica, all <laughs> right? And, and maybe Barbados because Maybe, of Rihanna. Of Rihanna. yes, exactly, <laughs> exactly, and Rihanna, right? Like, we might know that, which is great. Lovely, rich cultural histories as well to be added to that large spectrum. But I felt that Trinidad deserves a place because we've got many legendary actors, musicians that are here, that are thriving, that 
that is their that was their home as well too. So um, that's what that's what we're creating together. And I've got a couple other projects that are also brewing um, that I'm I'm really excited about as well. So yeah, this is a, a whole new space, but with the heart of real representation and authenticity being at the center of it all. I think yeah. that's exactly it. That that real representation is part of what is dismantling racial prejudice. It's helping people see and understand, like you said, the breadth of what we have to offer as a people. Things that get erased when we only focus on enslavement, only focus on certain very narrow stories. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes. Earlier you were mentioning the writer's strike. And now you're talking about this amazing project that you're involved in. So now I'm wondering, how is the writer's strike impacting you? How's it impacting you in terms of your professional work? And how's it impacting you in terms of this beautiful project you're working on? Well, if it wasn't for the writer's strike, I would not have been able to narrate (laughs) Dr. Roxy Manning's book. So we can thank the writer's strike for that, for sure. (laughs) That's the first positive. I mean, I want the writers to get more money. So that's what. Absolutely, too. Like just how it's impacting people. I'm so happy we had a positive impact. Right. Yes. No. It's it's really. I mean, truthfully, jokes aside, it's it's really it's having a staggering impact on our industry. And um, I, you know, I live in Hollywood, so every day I'm passing by the studios, and the people are picketing every single day, every morning. Um, it is. It is. A really challenging time, but also I really believe that this is a time that we're going to look back on and say, wow, if it wasn't for us being on those streets, if it wasn't for our dedication, we would not have the kind of rights that we have now, earnings that we have now, making sure that we're not taking advantage of and uh, with AI and you know modifying our images or holding on to our image. I really believe in the fight, um, but I also know it's beleaguering to many creatives hearts right now and nobody's talking about that we're all smiles in front of the camera when we see a friend of ours we did a show with and we all have our picket sign but like once that camera flashes and that person leaves to go back home they've got to figure out great how am i putting food on the table now i know i've got another four or five months of this um and my feet hurt because i've been walking (laughs) you know what i mean yeah so i think that it's it's there's a lot of sacrifice now, but I, in my heart, believe that it's going to reap some positive benefits and and really change the face of our industry and what we're um, what we're worthy of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not just a writer's strike, is it? It's uh... no, it's writers and actors. Uh... And actually, last night the um, the auto workers union just went on strike in Michigan. Um, and about a couple months ago, the hospitality workers were on strike uh, and hospital workers as well. So this is a big time. This is not just the entertainment industry. This is about to have a ripple effect because of how much money is being lost. It's going to affect many, many industries. So it's kind of the beginning. How important this, this uh, our ownership of our voices, our ownership of our images in terms of AI and in terms of the traditional capitalist patterns of enslavement in being enacted in so many different ways and and now it coming into this industry it coming it's not that it hasn't always been there but this very clear expression of it now you know yeah i think it's, i'm i'm really grateful that you mentioned that as a reference point because it's so true it's basically taking those same structures right those that those structures, slave structures, right? Slavery structures were the genesis of how all of these corporations work. So what happens when the slaves run free, learn what they need to learn, right? Understand their rights, and you don't have control anymore. And that's what's happening now. Mm. That's what's happening now. Knowledge. And yeah. I think one of the things I love about the fact that it's happening is like people started thinking of just the writer's strike, but just like happened in the civil rights movement, we need to come together. We need to say that you are a writer, I'm a psychologist, I'm a book author, but we are together. We need to support each other. We're in this together. And all of the gains that y'all are making are going to impact 
and influence what I'm experiencing and what my rights are. So this yeah. is, it's truly universal. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. You mentioned that you're a big fan of SWAT, Sarah. <laughs> I've so, been the heck out of it. We're just in season five. <laughs> well, I will t- I will tell you this, something that I was like so deeply heartened by about two weeks ago on the line, picketing with uh, other actors, writers, but there was a group of about 10 or 15, maybe teenage, 20-something-year-old fans of SWAT they're marching in solidarity and they all had t-shirts and they were like, we're here because we care about this story. And because we care about this story, we care about these actors. And so we want to support and be present and show up just for that. And I was like, I got so emotional because I thought, wow, that's a whole new way for fans. Yeah, of course. You know, because it does, it it affects us all. It affects us all. It's interesting. (laughs) really wonderful i mean we're talking about story in many different ways and and I, I i do have a curiosity about your own relationship in your childhood with story your parents and story grandparents and story what what do you have anything to say about that yeah yeah yes i think hmm. it's interesting because it as soon as you say that i have two images or memories that come up for me when I was very, very young, must have been four, five, six, my aunt, Auntie Jenny, she was sort of our family comedian. Like she was the jokester of the family and was really one of the first, along with my uncle, Uncle Mervyn. And I say their names so that they know that they are the ones who have influenced me as well. But Auntie Jenny and Uncle Mervyn both had such an artistic heart. Auntie Jenny used to read poetry and um, used to do stand-up, like in Trinidad, like, wow. you know, her own version of stand-up, and was really bold. She was always the one to, like, you know, talk back and have a little sass. And Uncle Mervyn was this Renaissance man. He would write poetry, kept poems. He loved music. And then... They were a big inspiration. And then I, were, I remember being about four or five, and I loved writing stories. Oh. I loved writing stories. My mother would invite, my mom used to work for the International Monetary Fund in Washington, D.C. And so, you know, she would sort of bring me to work on the days that maybe she couldn't find a babysitter. I didn't know. I was get excited that I'd be at her office. And I would be at her office, and the best way to keep me occupied was to sort of sit me in a corner Give me some computer paper (laughs) off of the dot matrix printer and then sort of sent me there with some markers and pens and pencils. And I would write stories and draw pictures and create my own little books and share them with her at the end of the day. And it's something that has always been a space of solace and joy and, and empowerment now that I think about it. Because those stories that I wrote could be anything that I envisioned, not that I was told I had to fit within or there were certain limitations. No, it was boundless. Thanks for sharing. Is there anything else you'd like to name that has inspired you in your journey? Wow, it's interesting. Yes, there are are several. There are several. Um, I mean, I would say from very, very young when I think of entertainment specifically, but even beyond that too, there are quite a few. I know from very young, Whoopi Goldberg was a big inspiration to me because she was such a rule breaker in so many ways. She, you know, I connected with her because of our tone, but also she seemed a little different and out there and still had this this unmistakable appeal that everybody was so drawn to. Um, I think that there is something in Oprah for me growing up, you know, being in high school and coming back and knowing at five o'clock Oprah was on. And, you know, I could, it was like looking at someone who kind of spoke like me and was also a little, you know, on the bigger side. So I didn't feel as invisible. She made me feel very seen. And then I would say in more recent years, definitely Viola Davis, who has been um, a guide and someone that I really, really admire and have worked with, the great, great honor of working with as well, too. And then I would say um, the last few, uh, you know, 
are, you know, I loved Entozaki Shange as well and Edwidge Dantika, who is a Haitian writer. Um, but more recently, there is a new emerging artist, musician that I'm going to shout out because yeah. her music has deeply moved me and I think more people should know about her. She has created a genre called affirmation music and her name is Tony Jones. And Tony Jones is, you know, she's this amazing woman probably. I, I don't even know how old she could be. We're, we're all kind of timeless. But she is able to tap into a space for global majority women, specifically black women, to do a lot of that healing that needs to happen through her music in affirmation form. And I believe she's a living legend, even in wow. these early years. So I'm excited to see how much more she gets to do and just be honored to witness her evolution as well. Oh, thanks for sharing these sources of inspiration. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I'm going to be looking up Tony Jones and Maybe she'll be on the podcast. I'd love Put her to on. Up her Put room. her yeah. on. She's amazing. If you know her, send us. Send yes. Send an intro. Yeah. Absolutely. Will do. She's, she's wonderful. Great spirit. Great mission. And the embodiment of care for beloved community. I mean, the embodiment of it. So. Wow. I can't wait to hear her music. <laughs> well, I know we're beginning to move towards closure, but I'd love to know. And I mentioned to you before the call that I have an 18-year-old who is a musical theater performer and is just like yes. wonderfully brilliant. And they're not necessarily moving into entertainment. I'm not sure if they see themselves yet in that way. Mm. But mm. I wonder what advice would you have for people like my teen uh, who are considering moving into entertainment? Yes, yes. Oh, I love this question. You know, honestly, I think, first of all, what a great advantage they have at this time to be able to come into a very quickly evolving industry. So I'm grateful to be able to say that I can't tell them exactly what it's going to be like um, and that they get to experience it all on their own. But no matter what the iteration of it is, if they come into this space with the desire to give more than they expect to get, they're already leagues ahead. Because I think that an older or an earlier notion of what the industry was is that you kind of come into it hoping to win a lot of, get a lot of money and book. And, you know, now that our modern day strikes and understanding of how the industry works has sort of revealed that it may not be the most lucrative thing. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, that doesn't necessarily have to stop anyone from from choosing to do it, but it does allow them to deepen their reasons why they need to do it and get very specific about their motivations. And then from there, what they want to do within it, you know? And so I believe that having a clear vision and mission, if you're choosing to step into this industry is vital. It's the only thing that will sustain you. Yes. Um, and I say that from a space of having experienced I feel very confident with the success and the joy that I've had in my time and with the challenges. I feel in balance of both. Um, I think in recent years, working on The Shy has been so gratifying. Lena Waithe is just the most legendary, warmest person to work with. Um, and I've learned quite a bit working with her in Helmingrad. Um, and I believe that she is the kind of person who has a consistent fueled vision and mission for what she wants to do in this industry. And it keeps work flowing and it keeps communities growing and thriving. So I just say, as long as they choose to give more than they're expecting to get, they're in a great space. And then, you know, just having that, that, that trust of changing circumstances and knowing that if they have anything in their spirit that is allegiant to, to too much order, right? and limitation that's antithetical to real creative free process. So there's understanding the business. There's that's great. Understand the business, but once it's not about the business and it's about the art, fly free. Don't hold yourself back. Be unbridled. Mm -hmm. That's the only space that we as artists get to be completely unbridled and to trust themselves. That's what I would say. Wow. Well, as we're coming to a close, are there any actions you'd like our listeners to take to help promote equity in the industry? 
Yeah, uh, definitely. I think that I think that there must be not just for the story makers in Hollywood, but also for us all as story makers, as people, to open up our narratives. Mm-hmm. Meaning it's just never just about one's own view or one's own experience, um, but to find connection through the collective, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Um, we're all creators, we're all contributing, no matter if you're in the industry or not, right? And if you open up your narrative, if we choose to open up our narrative and and the stories that we're creating, then there's some equity and flow and freedom there. I think that's the, the first thing. And then I also believe being as educated as possible about what's happening really all around you. So perhaps you may not be in the industry, understanding what these creatives are asking for in terms of demands for the strike and asking yourself, how does, how could that relate to me? How could that affect me in some way um, on a, you know, on a later, on a later level? Does that make sense? Um, Yeah. And then, and then I think finally, I think finally just expanding our, uh, our beloved community on a professional level, Mm. right? So saying, I know that I see you as beloved community and you as well, but now how can we liaise in a way that is um, creating fertile ground for something new? Project, relationship, whatever. But let's, let's make something new together. Yeah. Something about expanding beyond whatever limitations we had, but as I see you as my beloved community, also seeing the places where we align where we resonate and where that resonance can actually create new music. Yeah. Yeah. We can make a symphony. Let's do it. You yeah. Know I mean? Yeah. We really can. Because all instruments are needed for a cacophonous sound. Truly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, what a total delight it's been to be here with you. And and uh, just in case the, the whole uh, viewing, uh, listening audience didn't know how excited Roxy was to have <laughs> Roxy and I are both all smiles, big, big, big smiles. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's been quite a delight to anticipate this mm. lovely time with you, and I'm sorry that it's over. Oh. Thank you so much for being with us to you, and thank you so much to our listeners for being with us. Mm. Please support this work in the world by going to our website, antiracistconversations.com, where you'll learn how to purchase our new books, how to have an anti-racist conversations, and the anti-racist heart, and learn about upcoming podcast guests and new classes, and be able to play this particular wonderful podcast again. Ah. Thank you so much, ladies. It's truly been an honor. I've enjoyed every minute of this. I was very much looking forward to this conversation. Mm-hmm.